0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Hello. Good morning. Um, Thanks for having me. I bring greetings from Southland Santa Ana, which is my Home Church, as Pastor Hans said, um, we're a baby church. Just we launched in January, so we're just getting started. And um, while it's hard to be away, I think on Sundays in the early days, when you're one of two elders, um, I count it a great privilege to be able to be with you this morning. And I love being able to kind of see other churches in the broader church and how you how you do church and. Churches that meet in hotel ballrooms, you know, it's every, there's every type of church under the sun. It's fun to see, uh, the diversity there. So thanks for having me. Um, I got quite the welcome this morning with live animals and a massive, like, mosh pit of wedding frivolity happening right as I was driving in. So <laughs> I was like, what, well, is this a movie? Are they see- filming, like, an episode of The Chosen? Like, what is going on? Um, by the way, good show. I would recommend The Chosen. Um... So yeah, as Hans mentioned, I I work full-time for the Gospel Coalition, and uh, my job is to write about culture and uh, the arts from a gospel-centered perspective. And in that work, I find it so essential to be reminded that Christ is supreme over culture. Um, It's not just that Christ and culture are in conversation on the same level, right? Christ is supreme over culture. That's the only way you can engage culture in a healthy way where you're not kind of changed by the culture, right? You have to come into it with this Christ is supreme over culture. And that's kind of the topic that I've been given to speak into as part of your um, Supremacy of Christ series, Christ Supremacy over Culture. Um, much of what I write about is, is really looking in the culture, kind of scanning the horizon of culture for the good, the true, and the beautiful, And I can only do that well because I recognize that Christ is the capital G, good, capital T, truth, capital B, beauty. He is the goodness, truth, and beauty embodied. And that, I think, should allow Christians to explore the good and the true and the beautiful in the lowercase sense in a free way. So part of the point I want to kind of communicate today is... Contrary to the stereotypes of Christianity that it's kind of like check your brain at the door, disengage from appreciating beauty and goodness, I think Christians are positioned to actually appreciate it more and evaluate it in a clearer sense because we have Christ's supremacy over it because he stands as the capital G capital T capital B standard by which we can kind of evaluate everything else so I'm going to kind of explore that today, maybe specifically looking at the T word of those, that trio, truth. How can we know truth? It's a, it's a very live question in today's world that we live in. Um, a few years ago, you might have seen Oxford Dictionary declared post-truth the word of the year. So this phrase post-truth has kind of entered our cultural vocabulary in recent years. Um, Oxford dictionaries defined post-truth as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Um, in early 2017, Time magazine kind of latched onto this post-truth idea, and they had a cover story with the three-word question, Is truth dead? Question mark. Now, what was interesting about this is they designed it in such a way to mimic a cover that Time had 50 years earlier, in the 60s. Back then, the question was, is God dead? So isn't it interesting that Time magazine is making this connection, that these two are intimately related? You do away with God as as a transcendent source of truth, then naturally, downstream from that, you can't have truth, right? So Is God dead? Then the the next question is, is truth dead? So, interesting, right? In this post-truth world, it follows from a post-God, kind of post-Christian world. Without God as an ultimate standard of truth, we all have our own truths, right? As interpreted by us. To each their own. You do you, right? Um, And this move away from transcendent truth isn't new, It's actually been kind of a centuries-long trajectory Um, that kind of goes back maybe to the Enlightenment with certain Enlightenment thinkers like Descartes, uh, Rousseau, who kind of moved the conversation about epistemology and truth from a transcendent thing outside of the self to which all of us were subject to then truth becoming interior, this inward turn, so that ultimately you kind of look within yourself for truth. And now, kind of all these centuries later, we're seeing... The result of that, look within yourself for truth. And and naturally, we're kind of post-truth at this point. So the Internet age hasn't invented the post-truth idea. Um, It's really just kind of the the last stage. But I do think that technology and the Internet are kind of putting the final nail in the coffin of truth. And that's a lot of what I've been writing about and thinking about. It's what my most recent book, The Wisdom Pyramid, is about, which I'll reference a bit later later. The internet, you know, online, you basically can find whatever facts you want, right? Whatever truth you want to believe, you can Google evidence for it, and there you go. Like, that supports me. So we're in this place where I think everyone kind of prefers narratives to reality. I just wrote an article about this this week for the Gospel Coalition, about how there's kind of a division in our culture between those who prefer the the narrative, whether on the left or the right, to reality. And so they, when facts do arise, it's kind of like I'll shoehorn the facts into my narrative, whichever narrative I have, and if there's facts that go against my narrative, I'll just ignore them and kind of put them aside. So th- there are many other dynamics I could talk about with the internet, but there's there's this troubling sense that in a world where you can curate your own feeds of reality and kind of build up these echo chamber bubbles where you're only listening to things that affirm the narrative you want and the truth that you like um it becomes unworkable in in a society where every there's like a billion different truths a billion different realities Um, covid kind of underscored underscored this in really interesting ways um you know we can talk all day about how this worked out in covid but think about like masks for example You have some people who insisted that, you know, their truth was that masks are pointless. They don't help, right? Then you have others whose, their truth is masks are so important. It's the most important thing we can do. And so there was a lot of conflict about that, right? But they can't both be true, right? Like there is a reality somewhere that is true. And so there are real world consequences to this kind of everyone has their own truth epistemological world that we live in. Um, There are problems when we have no shared reality, when there's no transcendent kind of true for everyone truth. Um, We're seeing it in our culture. It's this increasingly um, angry kind of hostile culture because we're not making progress on any sort of important conversations because everyone's coming at it with their own narrative, with their own truth, and there's no transcendent kind of standard to which we're all subject and that's leading to all manner of chaos i think there are at least three big implications to this Uh, one has to do with orientation Um, we're like sailors lost at sea right we're like nomads wandering in the desert there's no sense of where we are in the world in the post-truth era we're just wandering kind of meandering clicking our way through life clicking from one thing to the next on the internet so orientation is a problem. Definition is the second big problem. There's nothing clearly defined anymore because there's no consensus. There's no If there's no objective, definitive, unshakable truth, then everything is subject to personal interpretation. Everything is subjectively defined, and so it creates this fluid environment where we can't even share definitions anymore, right? And you're seeing that in certain debates right now, whether about race and sexuality, you know, all... We can't even define what male and female mean anymore, right? Those words are totally arbitrary. So orientation is a problem, definition, and then destination. I think this may be the biggest deficiency in our post-truth world. We have no ultimate purpose. There's no telos. There's nothing that we're going towards. Why am I here? Ultimately, I think the post-truth world is a meandering path of hopelessness that leads to death extinction, nothing beyond. So that's a downer. Sorry to kind of start on a downer, but this is our world, right? This is a world that we live in post-truth because we're post-God. And that's a mess, right? But here's the good news. That equation kind of works in reverse. If we are post-truth because we were first post-God, then it stands to reason that if we recover kind of god as the transcendent source then we can recover truth we can find our way again so that's the hope and that's what i want to speak to today and i want to do it by looking at one of my favorite bible verses uh, john 14 6 i think john 14 6 is such a powerfully orienting verse in the chaos of a post-truth world it's li- and it's also just a life verse of sorts for me as someone who, from a young age, was kind of intellectually wired, and, you know, I grew up in a Midwestern Baptist context where it wasn't intuitive that you could be a Christian and that you could be interested in intellectual pursuits, I actually took me going to Wheaton College to kind of discover, oh, you could actually do both. You could be a faithful Christian and you could pursue truth. C.S. Lewis was also an important model for me in that regard. Um... But it's a life first for me because what it does is I think it frees us up to be the most intellectually curious people in the world, because we we know the truth that is said by Jesus in this verse. So um, let's read the passage um, and just to kind of situate us in the context. Um, this is part of the Last Supper discourse, and Jesus is kind of starting to you know make it clear that he's something is coming, um, He's going somewhere right, in, in, in chapter 13, leading up to chapter 14, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come, so he's starting to talk about, I'm going someplace, uh, and then Peter asks, Lord, where are you going, Jesus answers him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward, so Peter's asking about this, and then in, 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 chapter 14 which we'll read uh, Thomas is also asking about what is this destination where are you going so let's go ahead and read it um, uh, yeah I don't know if does everyone stand when you read the passage so let's go ahead and stand um, and I'll read it I'll read uh, the first six verses of chapter 14 let not your hearts be troubled Jesus is saying this to his disciples believe in God, believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way, you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And this is Jesus' kind of mic drop response. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. So, go ahead and be seated. Um, I love that... I love that mic drop moment, right? (laughs) This is one of Jesus' all-time... I mean, he has many mic drop verses, but this one is a boom. Like, I am the way. right? And he he foreshadows it in verse 4. He's like, you know the way to where I am going, Thomas is like, how do we get there? How do we get to where you're going? And he's like, basically he's saying, like, I'm sitting right here. Like, I'm right here. <laughs> you know the way. And then he says it explicitly in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. So I want to look at this verse with by looking at the three kind of parts of it. He describes himself in three ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think the three parts of that kind of map onto the three challenges I just mentioned about our post-truth world. So, disorientation, right? In a disorienting world, Jesus is what? The way. He, he offers us clear orientation. In a world lacking definition, if everything is subjective. Jesus says, I am the truth. Not a truth, right? The, the article is important here. <laughs> the truth. So he offers objective, definitive truth. And then thirdly, in an aimless world with no destination and no ultimate hope, Jesus is the life. That's where this is all going. I am the life. In me, he's saying, you can have eternal life. Your destination is secure. So I want to just kind of drill down each of those three in my time this morning and kind of offer us a hopeful vision for how we can survive this post-truth world. So the way this kind of clear orientation that Jesus offers us. Um, again, I love that Jesus responds to Thomas the way that he does. Thomas is curious about the specifics about the destination, but Jesus answers by basically saying, yeah, the Father is where I am going, but I am how you will get there as well. So follow me, right? Don't. There's no other way. Don't follow any other leader, any other kind of scheme about salvation. Like, I'm it. I am the way. And our culture, of course, does not like this. John 14, 6 is not the most popular verse in in our world because we like to think that if we believe in heaven, if, if heaven exists, then surely there are multiple paths to get there, right? Surely we can kind of each cobble together our own bespoke spirituality with a little bit of this and a little bit of that that kind of leads eventually to the same place. That's the popular idea, right, in our culture. So for Jesus to say, nope, I'm it, I'm the way, no one comes to the Father outside of me is challenging, right? Is, is it exclusive? Yes, absolutely, it's exclusive. But that's a good thing because it's actually incredibly burdensome, I think, when you, are the, when you have to figure out your path to God, right? It, it sounds liberating and, you know, everyone can just kind of find their own way to God, but there's actually a burden in kind of, um, the freedom of just charting your own path to salvation or to heaven. Jesus paved the way already, right? All you need to do is follow him. So that, that is not just liberating on the salvation level, which it is, and that's the most important level, but I think it's also liberating in terms of just practical life, um, so I've been thinking a lot about just life flourishing in the digital age in this kind of information superhighway world. Do you guys remember that? The internet in the early days was referred to as the information superhighway. If you're a Gen Z here, you probably don't remember that. Um, Al Gore invented that in the 90s. He invented the internet. It's true. Um, <laughs> So this this idea this this metaphor of the information superhighway is accurate, right The internet is nothing if not a vast web of paths. You can go anywhere and everywhere like you open your phone, you open your computer and you're instantly off to the races in any number of directions like it's a choose your own adventure world. never have we had so much power to make so many choices what to click on, what to watch, what to listen to and, and each one of them takes you on a totally unique path Netflix. Is such a burden. Like I, I get stressed opening Netflix because of the over choice problem. How many of you can relate to that? Like my wife and I sometimes like want to just like watch Netflix, but forty five minutes later we still haven't decided what to watch and we just give up. It's like too it's too overwhelming. There's a paralysis that comes with too many options. There are limitless paths we can go down online right? You click on one thing out of curiosity, and then the next thing you know, you're on a Wikipedia rabbit trail, right? Like exploring something that you want to learn more about. Not only is it disorienting, kind of like, where am I in this story? Why am I here? But it's also addictive, right? The labyrinth maze of the internet and its many pathways is basically one big time suck, right? We can easily find ourselves just going down all these paths and spending all of our time there and it's leading to a lot of grief i've been thinking about the imagery in the book of proverbs about wisdom and it's often associated with a path it's kind of like wisdom is about staying on the path don't deter don't go to the left or the right don't listen to lady folly who's calling out to you from the margins like hey Come over. You, you can get off the path. Like, come see what I have to offer you. Like, I have some good food in my house. That's like imagery that shows up a lot in Proverbs. And I think there's a parallel here with the internet age, right? I've been I've been describing uh, algorithms as like the lady folly of our day. Because what are algorithms if not voices calling out to us, hey, I know you might be going somewhere right now with a destination, but there's time. Come, come click on what I have. Come watch what I have. Come listen to what I have. So we're dealing with this kind of pull away from wisdom all day, every day. You open your phone and it's a constant battle like between going somewhere with a destination, having intentionality, and being distracted by the lady folly algorithms that call out to you. Come, come take what I have, right? So making Jesus central in your life helps us stay on the path of wisdom because his way is the only way that gives us ultimate direction it's the ultimate true north we need a clear sense of orientation in today's world we need to kind of know what the way is if not if you don't have that then you're just going to be just yeah totally frazzled totally paralyzed with all the options all the pathways that you could go down Um, it's actually liberating to have the way so clearly agreed upon as christians jesus is the way so, clear orientation. He is the way. He's also the truth. So there's an objective definition that we have in Jesus. And that's also liberating, right? Um, in a post-truth world of total subjectivity, where truth has become whatever people want it to be, my truth, your truth, right? Live your truth is a, is a popular phrase. I think Oprah you know, said that in an acceptance speech at the Golden Globes a few years ago telling everyone to live their truth. But that quickly becomes impossible in practice. <laughs> um, it becomes impossible to have meaningful discussions when you have your truth and I have my truth. Like It becomes impossible to build established knowledge because knowledge is built on solid foundations, right? So how can we advance in knowledge and intellectual pursuits if, there's no shared foundations. It becomes impossible to really live in the world. And there's lots of examples where we can just kind of make this super obvious, but think about like um, with traffic laws. What if we applied the kind of my truth and your truth idea to traffic laws? Like one person's like, my truth is red lights mean go and green lights mean stop. And another person says the opposite that would lead to like death and destruction all over the place, right? Um, if a 12-year-old insisted that their truth is that they identify as a 16-year-old and so they should be able to drive, not only is the DMV not going to let that happen, they're not going to give a 12-year-old a driver's license, even if they identify as a 16-year-old, it's just not going to end well. We have to have truth in order to survive as a society, just functionally, right? There has to be some sense of objective truth. So even the thought of my truth and your truth breaks down very quickly once you start thinking about it for very long. You know, the the civilization that insists on subjective truth is not a civilization that will survive for very long. It's unsustainable and I think you're seeing kind of the decline of western civilization specifically because of this, right? We are fraying, we are fragmenting because of this idea that there's no objective truth. It's unsustainable. So then what do we do? How do we find truth in this noisy world of hyperfragmentation with so many voices, so many opinions, so many perspectives on truth? Where we open the internet on any given day and there's dozens of voices calling out to you with their truth, trying to sway you, uh, trying to grab your attention... Um, how do we evaluate that? How do we know what sources are true, what what are untrue, what are helpful, what are unhelpful? This is really what I, the question that I was wanting to explore in my new book called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. i um, basically, in the book, I'm taking the concept of the food pyramid. How many of you remember the food pyramid from childhood? So, it's basically the idea that, like, what you eat, the physical intakes that come into you constitute your physical health. You can, you're can you either going to be physically healthy because of good intakes or physically sick because of junk food intakes. I think the same idea works for our spiritual health. We are going to be spiritually healthy if we are taking in nourishing sources of information and knowledge, and we're going to be spiritually sick if we're not. I would argue most of us are spiritually sick in our society today, in the Internet age, because we're bombarded by junk food information and toxic knowledge so essentially i'm recommending in this book the wisdom pyramid that our diet of intakes in this overstimulated world needs to be oriented around god because he is wisdom personified right when jesus says in john 14:6 that he is the truth what he's doing there is he's connecting himself to god and the kind of logos the eternal wisdom so um, I think I have this verse on the screen, John one one. So John begins his gospel by framing kind of God as eternal wisdom and connecting that to Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, eternal wisdom. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then later, John kind of ties that to Jesus. So the Word became flesh, and that's Jesus. So Jesus is wisdom embodied. He is the capital T truth that allows us to recognize and glean and evaluate truth in all sorts of other places. So um, we can show the wisdom pyramid graphic if you have that slide and I'll just kind of talk through this idea. So the idea with this is the foundation of God's word is the truth of Jesus, the eternal logos. And it provides not only a solid foundation upon which you can build a healthy life diet of knowledge, but it also has a vertical kind of scaffolding function. Because we have the indisputable, infallible word of God, the eternal wisdom of God at the base, it allows us, it frees us up to explore truth in all of these other places because we have a standard by which we can judge everything else, right? We can gain truth from books, for example, or art, which is the second to the top level we can gain truth from that because we have a filter. We have a, a standard of truth that we can evaluate it. If you don't have that, if if everything is just kind of, it looks true to me, like I feel like that's true, I feel like that's helpful, then that that's going to lead to foolishness. But we can be wise if we have the properly ordered diet where God's eternal wisdom is at the base, and then kind of going up from there, um, it goes from kind of the most proximate to God to the least. So the Bible, of course, is the closest to the source that we have. It's God's very speech to us. Um, and then the church I put on the next most important level because that's God's presence among his people. It's the body of Christ on earth. It's the Holy Spirit calling people together, forming a people. So there's proximity to God in the church, both in the local body that we're participating in and in the church across time uh the church the church tradition can be a great um, source of wisdom for us nature is the next closest proximity to god category because it's god's creation it's it's psalm 19 which we read in the call to worship the heavens declare the glory of god the sky proclaims his handiwork there's things god reveals to us by what he has made and so that there's kind of a purity to that, that is important. It's a source of wisdom, right? Nature is objective in a post-truth world. There was actually a headline in the L.A. Times recently that it was an article about climate change. But I loved the headline. It was something like, um, "We may live in a post-truth world, but nature does not." So that's why it's a source of wisdom for us. It helps break us out of this hyper-subjective world. Like, you know, it's either raining or it's not. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you have opinions about the weather doesn't matter like weather is weather is weather nature is nature it's there's a reality to that that is helpful so then books is the next level up level up and books and the arts you know people ask me like you have it like close to the top close to like the the dessert category so are you saying it's not helpful i'm saying no it's helpful but because books and the arts are man-made creation they're subject to fallibility. Um, so, we can gain truth and wisdom from books and from the arts, but we just have to be a little more discerning because there's a lot of error that can be introduced on those levels. And that's critical to my work at the Gospel Coalition. When I'm reviewing a TV show or a movie, like I, I recognize that in any given film, there's probably truth that I can affirm because it, it actually is consistent with the lowest foundation, but there's likely some things that aren't quite right there's likely some falsehoods and and i think that we as christians need to be better about kind of doing both at the same time there's a tendency in today's world to absolutize everything where it's like that book had one paragraph that i didn't like so it's all trash like or or the opposite where it's like i loved 100 percent of everything in that book it's the best thing ever most things that are made by humans are not 100 percent one or the other by God's common grace, an atheist could produce a work of art or a book that is full of truth that a Christian can affirm. And likewise, a Christian could produce something that is actually full of error and falsehood. So we just have to be discerning. We have to be careful. And that's why what I said about the Bible as both a solid foundation and as like scaffolding that keeps things in their proper place in the upper levels is so important. And then the social media and the internet I put at the top because not only is it the least proximate to God, but as we know, it's just riddled with error and deception and fake news and, you know, all sorts of things. So um, we have to be very careful, and I could talk all day about that, but I'll move on. Um, <laughs> the, the key idea that I mentioned at the beginning is, like, this is liberating, Right. Some people have the stereotype of Christianity being anti-intellectual, that it, that it should close us off from the world somehow, that we're not. We shouldn't be interested in exploring the beauty of God's nature or reading books broadly and diversely. But because Jesus is the truth, because the Bible is an infallible source of knowledge, it doesn't constrict us. It is the opposite, right? Having that absolute transcendent truth allows us to freely explore and learn and debate ideas with a standard and a referee outside ourselves. I think Christianity should be like the safest place for intellectuals in the sense that if you're really an intellectual and you're really pursuing truth, you're not interested in narratives, you're interested in the reality of truth. Christianity is the only place where you can actually make progress in that pursuit because there is a solid foundation upon which to build. Anyone else out in the world who's pursuing truth is going to be a nomad in the desert, ultimately. At the end of the day, it's eventually going to lead to subjectivity. Well, I think that's true, but that person says it's not true. So who decides, right? Eventually, it breaks down. You have to have a foundation of truth. And, and, of course, the Christian tradition, most of Christian history has functioned this way in the sense that the, all the best universities were founded on this idea. Harvard, Oxford, like, you, the idea of university education pursuing the sciences, nature, pursuing the humanities, it, it only works if you have the solid foundation of Scripture as the absolute truth. Um, people forget that the very idea of higher education only kind of came to be because of Christianity and the idea of an absolute truth. I am the truth. I am the way. So it'd be great if we could recover that, right? If if Christianity could become known in the world as the most fertile ground for intellectual pursuits, for artistic pursuits, scientific pursuits, because we actually have a framework where that can happen in a helpful way. So the idea of truth as liberation is, is a big idea for me um, because I think the world has reframed freedom as a defensive thing, right? Freedom is about freedom from something. Freedom from this group encroaching on my rights. Freedom from the government making me wear a mask, whatever. Like, but the Christian understanding of freedom is a positive vision. It's freedom to. We are free, our society says, insofar as we are subject to no external authority outside the self. But is that really freedom? I don't think so. I think that's a burden. I think that is a path to nowhere. Jesus did not say in John 8, total autonomy will set you free. Right? What did he say? The truth will set you free. And who is the truth? I am. So, true freedom is always hitched to truth. And contrary to the popular notion of freedom in our society, true freedom is always hitched to truth, an objective, true-for-everyone truth that gloriously exists outside of our own opinions, moods, and fickle temperaments. Without the truth, we are locked in a prison of our own making. But in Christ, we're freed up to actually know the truth in a reliable way life-giving way. And this leads to the third kind of word in this verse. Not only does Jesus bring orientation in a disorienting world, not only does he bring definition in a hyper-subjective world, but he brings life. That's what all of this is leading towards. Flourishing life, both in the now and in the not yet of eternal life. Jesus says this, this is kind of like the The ultimate goal, right? This is is the hope that he's giving his disciples. You will have life. You will have it abundantly and eternally with me. It's a beautiful promise, and there's a lot of promises that we hear in our culture today, right? Um, Find life in politics. You know, that will satisfy you. Find life in this tribe, or that tribe, or this cause, or that cause. Find life in this consumer brand, right? That's what most of consumer commercialism is based on that idea of promising life in this maybe maybe there's the promise of life in social media likes there's so many promises out there all of them are false except for the promise that jesus gives right we live in a world of kind of find yourself by pampering yourself right be true to yourself self-care you know, whatever you desire, whatever your heart desires will bring you life. Just kind of get rid of the barriers to that and be kind to yourself and that will bring you happiness. But that isn't satisfying, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. It, it leads us to unsatisfying places. Jesus says the opposite of our culture. If our culture says follow your heart, Jesus says follow me, right? Um, our culture says love yourself, and you'll be happy. Jesus says the exact opposite. Lose your life for my sake. And you'll find it. Matthew 16, 25. A life built around Jesus. A life that fully gives itself to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. Is a life worth living. It's a life of purpose. It's a life of joy. Um, a life built around sources that are more proximate to him and his truth. Is the only life i would propose that will satisfy jesus-centered wisdom built on his truth his way leads to health and life and flourishing we can choose to go through this life on his path that leads to life or we can be like the fool in proverbs who wanders off the path because lady folly's voice is enticing and we're like i'm gonna do that but that leads to death right right that's what the proverb says, like her way leads to destruction and many have followed her path to destruction. So if we listen to all the voices around us, if we put Christ and culture on the same level, eventually culture will win out. And I've seen it happen time and time again with well-meaning Christians who set out to kind of engage the culture, to be missionally cool with whatever, you know, and they end up being colonized by the culture and changed by it because they're not sufficiently grounded in the orientation and the hierarchy of this where christ is supreme over culture but it's that supremacy over culture that allows us to safely navigate culture in a way that isn't going to change us for the worse right if we listen to jesus's voice we will hear his words of truth they will be words of life for us we will flourish Psalm one is one of my favorite Psalms and I love the imagery of it when it, it talks about how the closer we are to God's word, the more we delight in God's word, the more we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Right. You guys are called roots, church. That's what that's the image that this is describing. When your roots are in fertile soil that's nourished by living water, by the source of wisdom that is Christ. Then you will be like a sturdy tree. You will bear fruit. You'll, you, you will yield its fruit in season. Your leaf will not wither. Whatever you do will prosper. On the contrary, if you are living a life kind of not in proximity to that river of life, to, to Jesus and his truth, you will be like chaff, right? The wind will blow and you will be, you're rootless, you're not substantive, you will fall away. So Jesus is the tree of life, right? We were talking about the movie, The Tree of Life, earlier. Great movie. Um, I'm I'm not going to say anything else about that because I could go on a 10-minute tangent at least. But Jesus is the tree of life, right? Uh, It's the image that bookends the Bible. In Eden, there's the tree of life. In Revelation, the end, there's the tree of life. But there's also the tree of life of the cross. The cross of Christ is the tree of life that ultimately bears the fruit that is for the healing of the nations that is for our healing and jesus himself used language of kind of trees bearing fruit john 15 is one of the most famous passages interestingly it's the next chapter after what we've just read in john 14 jesus goes on this whole beautiful uh kind of image metaphor of i am the vine you are the branches let's just read that john fifteen five: i am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit. Far for apart from Me, you can do nothing. So the farther removed we are from Jesus, from that tree of life, from that source, the more like chaff will become. But if we orient our life around Jesus in His words, in His truth, it'll be our North Star. It'll help us with orientation. It'll be our foundation. It'll be, it'll help us with definition. And it will be a source of life where we can bear fruit and and flourish. Um, It'll lead us to life. So in answer to the question that Time Magazine posed a few years ago, is truth dead? The Christian must say, no. Truth is alive and he is alive, right? Truth in the person of Jesus is alive and we can be alive in him.